DiscerningHearts.com presents Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Gutierrez studied theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and at the Angelicum in Rome. He holds a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. He has worked for the church in various capacities, including as a teacher and administrator, and is currently on the faculty of the School of Faith. His expertise includes Catholic social teaching, and his writings on the subject have appeared in several national Catholic newspapers and periodicals. He's the author of The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints, and The Social Teaching of the Catholic Church. Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Omar. Thanks, Chris. Good to be back. The Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, an important guide for us as we dive into the issues that affect our everyday lives. Let's start with some parameters when we talk about marriage. Help us to define what marriage is. Right. Well, that's a major question today. Certainly the way our culture defines marriage is a kind of um, a choice between two adults who love each other in a kind of committed fashion. And there's reason for that kind of definition. But more than that or beyond that, uh, we want to define marriage a little bit differently because it's more than just a choice between two people. And that's kind of the center of what the church has been trying to, to teach for so long and really how humankind has understood marriage for, for so long. Uh, marriage is not just a choice between two adults. It's, it's an institution that unites a man and a woman to each other and to any children that would be born as a fruit of their, their, their communion. So there's a, an aspect to this that goes beyond, that transcends just the choice of those two adults, and that's really the most important aspect here. Because when we talk about family, and, and as the church talks about family, we're talking about a certain kind of love, which we've touched on already. Mm-hmm. It's not a willful, fleeting, ephemeral love. It's a love that's long-lasting, a love that's committed, a love that, that's self-sacrificial. If that's the kind of love we're talking about, then the love between this man and a woman, which is a kind of choice, mm-hmm. the love between the two of them has to be more than just a kind of willful choice at this moment in my life. It's important to note the word that they use as far as this union, and it's the word conjugal. Mm-hmm. Conjugal is a deeper appreciation of all those different aspects as opposed to a Sexual union. Right, yes. The compendium doesn't say that marriage is a sexual union. It doesn't say it's an emotional union. It doesn't say it's a material union. It makes a point of using the term conjugal. Right, and for, precisely because when we when the church uses the word conjugal, which nobody uses in real in real, real parlance, right. right? Which is when you, when you see a word peculiar like that, you have to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. What is it really trying to express? What conjugal expresses is that it's a it's a joining of more than just bank accounts and more than just interests or emotions or whatever. It's it's a union of the whole person. When we started this whole conversation about the compendium, we talked about the dignity of the human person and the whole person, that the sense of social justice or, or, or development of the human person has to include not just the economic good, but the spiritual and social good of the person as well. Same thing with marriage. That's why marriage and family is so crucial. And the first aspect right, of implementing the social teaching of the church, because in the family we begin to understand what it means to be the whole person. 
And that conjugal union between a husband and wife, between man and woman, is about their bodies, but it's also about their minds and their souls and their spirits and their hopes and their dreams and their emotions. And every single sappy country song tells us that. Every single rock and roll song tells us that. We know this as human beings. We're drawn to it. It's more than just a contract. It's, it's something deeper than that. When we call marriage an institution, it is that to the extent that it is a building block, a, the cell, the nucleus, essentially, of that family. Right. And when we, we call it that, we're calling it that because we recognize there's something about it that transcends, right, that's outside of our constructs in the society. It's not controlled by the state. The governments did not come and create marriage. It's an institution that exists in and of itself, right, apart from whatever the law wants it to be or whatever human beings want to create it to be, it is what it is. Uh, it's an institution. That's what we mean when we say institution. So we recognize, uh, even regardless of what side we might be on the question of marriage, we recognize it is something in and of itself. And so the, the big debate in our society, this tension, this anger, this, this, this uh, cultural upheaval is about what do we understand to be marriage? Is it just this, this choice? between two adults? Or is it more than that? Is it really a, a, a word that expresses the, the union, this conjugal union between a man and a woman for the sake of the children that, that are born from that union? It dates back to such an ancient time. We see stories in societies even before a more defined religious tone began to enter into human society, mm -hmm. that marriage was the bringing together of this male and this female to be able to have children, to be able to contribute either to the clan or to the society, the culture that they existed in, they lived in. And they, it was always very well planned out. That's why even parents were involved <laughs> yeah. in the selection of those who would come together in that marriage. Yeah, and that's an excellent point because one of the things we've lost with this redefinition of marriage to be this just choice between two adults is we've lost that sense of the communal solidarity in marriage. We've lost certainly, sadly, the sense that that, that union exists for the sake of children. So we've lost that for sure. But we've also lost the sense that that union exists for the sake of society and the rest of society. For some reason, our understanding of marriage has just been limited between these two individual choices, and we've ignored the effect on the common good. And there is an effect on the common good. In fact, the compendium talks about this. Um, in paragraph 227, then, it says de facto unions, which is what we're talking about here, mm -hmm. not conjugal unions, but de facto unions. And de facto just means by the fact that I want it, so mm -hmm. a willful union. De facto unions, says the compendium, the number of which is progressively increasing, are based on a false conception of an individual's freedom of, to choose and on a completely privatistic vision of marriage and family. So it's private. It's not public. So for some reason, we've defined marriage as to be this choice, irregardless of how it affects society or how it affects children or how it affects anybody around us. Never before in the history of humankind have we viewed marriage in that way. And again, when we talk about marriage, we're talking about a specific kind of love. There are all kinds of loves, right, that are private uh, mm -hmm. and choices that we make that are private. That's fine. When we're talking about marriage, we're talking about a specific kind of choice of love. And that's what we're saying. This kind of love has wider effects to the common good in society. And again, if we redefine marriage, then you need to find – you give me another word, right, another institution – 
that expresses the kind of love that we all know exists and has to exist. That's why the church spoke out so strongly against the change in divorce laws. Exactly. Especially in the area of no-fault divorce. Yes, exactly. That, that, that's one of the great, uh, um, I think, roots of the, the, the problem we have today is with no-fault divorce, we've essentially stated, which came from the heterosexual community, which came from you know, just society, this, this willful sort of decadent society, uh, what we've said is that marriage is simply you know, a de facto union. It's a contract between two people that can be broken whenever we want. Now, again, this is because it's a very sensitive issue in some people's lives, and understandably so. Mm-hmm. Uh, the church recognizes that there are certain situations where, for the sake of the safety of a, a party or several parties in a marriage, you know, a legal separation needs to happen or a legal divorce needs to happen, which is a separate question from the question of sacramental marriage. And for this reason, the church, even the compendium says in this section, it says, we continue to invite and welcome those who have been hurt through the, the tragedy of divorce to continue to live their Christian lives uh, authentically in the church and live out the social teaching. But, but that aside, so we recognize the, the, the pain and, and, and the difficulty of, of, of divorce in people's lives. Mm-hmm. But the question of the public policy for no-fault divorce is a question that we, uh, we have to ask because we've seen the results of it. When 73%, for instance, of African-American children are born out of wedlock, 73%, 41% of the, of the wider population, more and more we've begun to denigrate the importance of marriage and this question again of indissoluble, long-lasting, committed love, which all human beings desire. We have so trivialized marriage, Omar, that it can be entered into unfortunately, in Las Vegas, after having consumed so many (laughs) uh, different types of drinks, and then an Elvis impersonator oversees that, (laughs) the church is horrified when that that type of contract is entered into by its members because there is a lack of an appreciation of what they've just committed to. Exactly. I mean, we've... We've managed to trivialize marriage so much that it ends up becoming this kind of drive-through thing, like everything else in our lives. This drive-through fast food, instant gratification culture that we have has been applied even to marriage, and that's why the preparation before marriage. You know, I remember many, many, many years ago, I read an article about Oprah praising the Catholic Church, which doesn't happen an awful lot, Mm-mm. but she was praising it because of the the pre-Cana or the 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 marriage preparation programs that the, the church requires before you enter into marriage you should ha- go through some preparation right so it's not mm-hmm. an instantcation type of move uh, and the reason the church requires that is to to make sure that the couples going into it understand that it is not what our society says it is not a de facto union it's a conjugal union right that we teach so that's why the compendium says making de facto unions legally equivalent to the family would discredit the model of the family. And notice what it says there. It doesn't say de facto unions legally equivalent to marriage. Legally equivalent to the family. Again, because when you def- redefine marriage in this way, you, you break apart what it means to be family. Uh-huh. If love can simply be this choice, then a child can reject the love of the parent. The parent can reject love for the child because... What's love? There is no such thing as this committed love. And we know what effect that has on children. Again, getting back to the sense of, of um, solidarity that, that is preached in marriage, that we learn through marriage, 
you know, we, when we look at great literature, whether it's Dostoevsky or Victor Hugo and Les Miserables or whatever, we, uh, you know, the ancients tell us that you can judge a society very much by the way it treats its children. Um, and when we say to our children that we don't have long-lasting love as necessary uh, to your raising, we're, we're doing a disservice to our children. As we've stated before, it's a very sad fact that in some relationships, there can be a lack of a sustained happiness. Mm. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's misery, but there was the adage that you stay together, you commit to a commitment, because that commitment and complementarity are a role model, if entered into properly, for the formation for those young males males and females who are about to go out into the culture and form their own unions. Exactly. I mean, if you look at it on any level, if, if you're a Catholic and you want to be able to pass your faith on to your children, then that long-lasting commitment is necessary. If you're an atheist and you simply want to pass on some values of civic duty to your children, well, you need a stable home to have that sustained formation for your child. From the state's perspective, it's it's helpful to have these stable marriages because, as statistics show, children who are brought up in those stable homes uh, are more likely to go through school on time, have higher levels of schooling, uh, earn more, and have their own more stable relationships as they go on in life. So there's an economic uh, benefit there, and, and, and the statistics show that as well. I mean, again, this is why this is all a social justice issue in a very real way. When you, when you look at the rates of marriage, they're much, much better. Sorry, they're much better for those who are more educated and earn more money than they are for those who are less educated and are poorer. That's an injustice. That's a huge injustice, especially since marriage is such a great boon economically. And we, we allow our poor to suffer in this lack of, of social capital that's so necessary in our society. We'll return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez in just a moment. This is Dr. Anthony Lillis. And Chris McGregor. And we invite you to join us in a once-in-a-lifetime Discerning Hearts Trinitarian pilgrimage throughout the Holy Land. This will be a unique opportunity for contemplative prayer, spiritual teaching, and fellowship in one of the holiest areas on the earth, the places touched by the lives of Jesus, Mary, and the Apostles. During this time, we will also walk closely in the company of the prophet Elijah through the most miraculous moments in salvation history, our history, which would later become pages in the gospel. Along with Sister Magdalite Balduc of the Community of the Beatitudes, the community of the famous Father Jacques Philippe, we hope to lead you into a new encounter with the great mysteries of our faith and a renewal of your devotion to the Lord. Join us May 26th through June 2nd, 2020. Please visit discerninghearts.com for a full itinerary and learn more about the contemplative Discerning Hearts Trinitarian pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. 
If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez. We are bound to repeat ourselves on this particular discussion, but because it is not said very often that this is, again, why we have preparation for marriage, especially for the young, that they realize the commitment they're, they're about to enter into. Someone pursuing the vocation of a religious life mm-hmm. to a religious order or to the priesthood mm-hmm. would have a discernment process of probably five-plus years before they're able to make a final vow. Yeah. In our preparation for marriage, it, so much emphasis is placed on the wedding preparation as opposed to the family preparation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And as as we we look at these questions about preparation for the couple and into the life they're going to lead, one of the difficulties we find is that so many aspects of our notion of love uh, are undermined by our society. I don't. I think it's fair to say that the preparation that needs to be done now for marriage couples is is much more extensive than it's ever had to be. And the reason for that is because we uh, we're so detached or so removed from these fundamental notions of what authentic, real love uh, have to be uh, if we're going to have fruitful marriages. That it's not just about the couple themselves. I mean, you said it before, but, you know, in ancient days, parents were involved in choosing the couple, and et cetera. And the reason for that is because there's a wider society that you're entering into when you become married and you're, you're making a public statement for this long-lasting love. To those who brought up racial issues mm. as a reason to redefine marriage, to say that somehow between a black male and a white female that marriage shouldn't occur. That in itself, considered a racist thought, a bigoted thought, would have been deemed an attempt to redefine marriage and that would be considered an evil. My own parents, in fact, my father is from Dominican Republic, looks black, and my mother is from Costa Rica, she looks white. And the first priest they went to actually refused to marry them because they were of different races. There was this attempt to redefine marriage as having to be between two races, the two similar races, the same same kind of races. That is the bigoted approach, to redefine marriage in a way that, uh, that ignores what the reality of marriage is. And, and I think the bigoted uh, uh, approach today is trying to redefine marriage a, a, away from something it, it is, the institution that it really is, trying to redefine it into something that's merely willful, that, that can be uh, uh, absolved or dissolved at the, the, the whim of one of the partners. As we enter into discussions with others about marriage issues, it, it's not about racial issues. It's not about sexual orientation issues. It's not about those things. No. It's it's about the conjugal union between the male and the female and bringing children into the formation of a family where that complementary nature of male and female can be lived out and 
round out the formation of that child. Right. And, you know, actually, you know, it's a fascinating the compendium, you know, makes this, this point very, very clearly. In paragraph 235, uh, the compendium says, The desire to be a mother or a father does not justify any right to children, whereas the rights of the unborn are evident. The unborn child must be guaranteed the best conditions of existence through the stability of a family founded on marriage, through the complementarities of the two persons, father and mother. When we talk about rights, if we're talking about civil rights here, uh, everybody likes to talk about, well, the rights of the two adults to be with each other, or the right of the two adults to have society recognize their love, as though the government should be in the business of recognizing people's loves. Um, but we never seem to be talking about, what were the rights of the child here? Right? Uh, what are the rights of the children in our society to be brought up in stable homes, which we know through social science and human history and personal experience and, and, and everything else to be the best atmospheres for them um, to grow up? What about the rights of the, the child to know who their father and mother are? Uh, and yes, there are exceptions to this rule. These are not broad statements. Uh, just as the church recognizes there are situations where a divorce is necessary, legal divorce is necessary, there are situations where you know, adoption is a beautiful thing, or the couple can't uh, have children, that, that's true. But that, those exceptions don't undermine the rule. Uh, and the rule is that marriage is, is, exists to unite the, the man and the woman together for the sake of the child. Uh, that will be born, hopefully, from the fruit of their union. Recalling that the family is the fundamental building block, the cell of society, that's where we learn how to exist within the bigger societies by living in that cell of society. Hence, that's why it's important to have the male representation and the female representation, because that child will be an adult that will go out into a society that will encounter other males and other females. And to negate the importance of that complementarity, that understanding of the nature of male and female is to deny an an important part of how we were created. We weren't created in unisons. We're not unisex. Yes, that's right. We're not. Right. I mean, and, and he created us male and female. It's intrinsic to the nature of marriage to have that definition clearly understood. Right. For the Christian, it's absolutely crucial. I mean, this is it's part of our very revelation as Christians to understand that this has to be the proper understanding, if only because, as, as we've said again, we've talked about repeating ourselves, but we've said again— you know, Genesis, when God creates man, he says, we'll create him in our image, in our own image, we will create him, and he creates male and female. Because it's, it's those two genders, when they come together in conjugal love and bring forth another, another life, it's, it's that union, that community, that family, right, that more fully expresses the image of God, who is in himself a communion of love. And so when we talk about the complementarity between male and female, it's... it's for the Christian, it's a matter of revelation, but it's also obviously a matter of biology. But we don't just want to be a matter of biology. We want to be a matter of, remember, the whole person. So that we're reflecting with this definition of marriage as being a union between a man and a woman, uniting the man and woman together for the sake of the children and the children to the parents. We, we want to recognize that definition is what it is because it recognizes the whole of the human person, not just an emotional choice. Right, not just an economic reality, but a, a, a fundamental reality about the whole persons and every person. What drives the conversation off course? What muddies up 
the ability to be able to see clearly on this is to introduce other issues that aren't appropriate to the particular discussion. So to say that this is somehow a statement about homosexuality or other areas that might be affected by it, that that's a no, that's not what the discussion is. Right, exactly. And so and so to those objections we can say, look, not nothing of what I've said requires, right, that a homosexual not practice their lifestyle. Even though according to the Catholic Church teaching it's 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 disordered, it's funny, it's that's the church's teaching. But but we're not suggesting any kind of a requirement to hunt down homosexuals or any of that stuff, which does happen sadly in some countries, and we would condemn that because that's a violation of human dignity as well. Mm-hmm. We're not advocating for discrimination because, as the Catechism teaches, discrimination against homosexuals is itself an evil and a wrong. What we're talking about is what is marriage itself, and what is the role of the state in marriage. Now, think of it this way: Why would the state involve itself in the question of marriage in the first place? Right? If marriage predates the state. So why is the state involving itself in the first place? Well, because with this definition of marriage as being this institution that unites a man to a woman and his children to his parents, uh, there's a vested interest in the state to have stable citizens, right? Children who are raised up and are educated well and are productive members of society, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's in the interest of the state. Versus the other definition of marriage, which is the, a recognition of the two choices of two adults. Why would the state be interested in that? How does that help the state at all? Why is the love or or lack of love, especially an ephemeral love that you can be dissolved at any moment, beneficial to the state or government? There is none. And in fact, no point in human history has that ever been the the interest or definition of marriage for the state. Because in that fundamental cell, the values, virtues, morality, ideally, is being taught and practiced out in that family. That individual was formed hopefully with values that would benefit not only their interaction, whether it's in a business or it's in a hospital or it's in a school, that their interactions with others builds up the area and not harms it. We pay taxes because Mm -hmm. of the principle of solidarity, because I recognize that I – I owe something to the rest of society, and so I pay a tax in order to help pay for roads or for military defense or whatever it might be. So the state recognizes that solidarity is a good and that solidarity is something that must be fostered. Well, nothing lifts up solidarity like family, right? like the, the union between a man and a woman for the sake of children and uniting the children to their parents. That's, that's the definition of what solidarity is. And so the state has a vested interest in that. And, and the compendium notices this as well, and it says – In paragraph 229, the solidity of the family nucleus is a decisive resource for the quality of life in society. Therefore, the civil community cannot remain indifferent to the the destabilizing tendencies that threaten its foundation at their very roots. Although legislation may sometimes tolerate morally unacceptable behavior, so this, you know, it, it tolerates all sorts of things. The state must never weaken the recognition of indissoluble monogamous marriage as the only authentic form of family. Because the home, the family, is considered the domestic church, any type of behavior that is practiced by those in the family needs to be that would lead them on the road to holiness. Hmm. So behavior such as an adulterous eye of a spouse, mm-hmm. whether cheating on a husband, cheating on a wife, that would be as destructive, if not even more so, to what was supposed to be occurring within the heart of that family. 
Exactly. I mean, that, that, this is why, again, this is why these, we're talking about this in the context of the social teaching of the church, because we recognize that these choices, these choices which are, are, are in the Ten Commandments, right? Mm-hmm. These choices that are within the families have a wider effect in society. When those kinds of sins happen within a family, they undermine the ability of the members of that family to know what it is to truly love. They undermine the ability of the family to know what authentic solidarity really looks like. And that's going to affect the way they deal with members of society, whether, as you said before, whether it's in a business or whether it's uh, you know, in, in, in their own practice or as a patient or as a customer or whatever it might be. It has far-reaching effects the way we view these issues. There's so much more in discussing this, and that's why it's really great to have the compendium of the social doctrine of the church, but also those discussions with pastors, deacons, um, lay leaders. Uh, but in bringing to a conclusion this particular conversation, any further insights, Elmar? Well, I did want to bring back one, one last thing here from the compendium and, and – um and then I invite, invite the listeners to, to think on, on, on certain things as well. But in, in paragraph 244, um, the, the compendium, after talking about family and, and education and children, etc., talks about the dignity and rights of children. Um, and, and it says this, it said, The rights of children must be legally protected within juridical systems, within the law. And it goes on to say, The first right of the child, the first one, is to be born in a real family a right that has not always been respected and that today is subject to new violations because of developments in genetic technology and on and on. And we do need to get into that, but just that question of the, the first right of a child is to be born into a real family. And by a real family, we, it's a prickly question in and of itself, but we recognize hopefully after, through this conversation that at the heart of a real family has to be this notion of a specific kind of love, a love that is is open to life, a love that, it, that can be fruitful, a love that is total, a love that is faithful, and a love that's indissoluble. And so, you know, as, as we're thinking and praying on these things and we think about social justice issues, right, we often don't think about how do I view love? How do I view love in my family? How is my relationship with my wife? And doesn't my relationship with my spouse or husband, uh, how's my relationship with my uh, spouse affect the way I live out social justice in the world? And if that's broken, if that relationship, that conjugal union is itself marred, then how much more difficult will it be for me to live out the social teaching of the church authentically in the world? Thank you so much, Omar. You're welcome. You've been listening to Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation to help support our efforts. But most of all, We hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez.